Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Liam. Good evening, Matt. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Good, good. It's been a, a long day, but um, I always look forward to recording these. It helps the day go quicker. Indeed, yeah. So do I. So do I. And it's been so long since we caught up as well. <laughs> since um, last <laughs> Thursday, your your book launch party. Yeah. Yeah. Getting in too early with the shameless plug there, but yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming along to that. It was a real, real good night. Good fun. Yeah. It's great to catch up with people these days. Um, you know, I don't get to see a lot of those old colleagues of mine regularly enough. And it's really good to be able to always come back to somewhere and always feel welcomed. Yeah. Yes, I do miss the place. I do miss you guys, but on to bigger and better things. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe um, one of these days you can tell us in a bit more depth about those bigger and better things. <laughs> one day. Um, I think we've got on, we've got planned coming up a, a bit more of an in-depth introduction to yourself and myself and how we know each other what our background is, what our story is. So. Yeah. And uh, why we get together once a fortnight to drink a beer and record a podcast. That's it. I guess speaking of recording a podcast, oh. <laughs> which is what we're here doing, um, yeah. you flagged that you wanted to talk this week about the current or the mo- the recent release from Meta, the Quest 3 VR headset. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to talk about a lot more than the, the Quest 3. I, I really do love VR. I, I'm quite passionate about VR. Um, and it's a topic that uh, it's a topic that I'm interested in and fascinated by, and it's a topic mm-hmm. that I think has a lot of far-reaching implications for entertainment, for other, you know, for work, for productivity, for various different industries. Now, I also tend to have a habit of becoming very passionate about awesome technologies that don't always take off as much as I would like them to. And we can talk more about this another time. But you know, I, I was a I was a very passionate Amiga user back in the day. I was a Windows Phone. <laughs> I was a Windows Phone guy. I still am. I never went as far as yep. uh, Zoom guy getting any tattoos of, of any of that stuff. Uh, do you remember Zoom guy? Zoom guy. No. no. Do you remember Zoom? The Zoom, yes. The Microsoft MP3 player. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, there was a guy who was well known on the internet for called himself Zoom guy because he was a big fan of this product. I think he yep. put a video on YouTube of him get himself getting a tattoo of the logo yeah anyway tangent i do sometimes have a tendency to get very passionate about really really great technologies that that don't catch on and it looks a little bit like vr is kind of that kind of thing at the moment but it isn't for for some reasons that i want to go into as well so yeah before i uh start getting into you know the nuts and bolts of all this stuff uh what, what's your kind of experience of vr any if at all extremely limited yeah I can recall going back, I was maybe about 2015, 20, yeah, 2014, 2015, having a trial of the Oculus oh, yeah. back then. I think that might have been the first iteration. Yeah. Yeah, someone in the office had one and we were just playing around with it. And I can remember back then that it was, it was a really unique experience hmm. because, sure, the graphics were not great, but because it was such an immersive yeah. environment, because it was all, you know, you're all completely blacked out. You've got the, even if it was blocky graphics, they were there. 
you had the audio, you, you were so immersed in that environment, it still tricked your brain into really believing that you're walking through this yeah. polygon-based yeah. forest, right? They did not try to make it look realistic. It was so immersive that your brain still felt like you were there, even though you knew it was not possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Because that's that's kind of what happens with uh, VR, and in fact, any other anything else. It, you know, it's it's not the VR system that makes you feel immersed. It's not the VR system that tricks you into believing mm. that you're there. It's Absolutely. your brain. You've just got to give it the right stimulation and the right things, and and have the right willingness. And it's really interesting you say that because um, we're going on from tangent here, but I, I just want to tell this story really quickly. Back in 2016, um, I was in London with some friends and, and we went to see somewhere where they had a setup of the HTC Vive, which was a, mm -hmm. a VR headset that came out that year, which which I'll, I'll talk a bit more about later as well. We, we went to see this demo of it that they had running at this store in London and we all took our turns and, and tried it on and they had quite a big play area set up for it. And you put the headset on, they gave you the ones and they started this demo. And the demo consisted of three VR experiences. One of them was called Tilt Brush, which is a 3D art program made by Google. So you just, you know, create, use colors and paint in a 3D yep. space to create 3D paintings. There's some really awesome stuff that people have made with that. The other one was called Space Pirate Trainer. And this is a, a just very arcadey game where you've got the two controllers. You can use one one as a shield, one as a gun, or swap them between guns and shields. And you get these little drones that fly up over this platform around you, and you just got to shoot them and dodge and protect yourself from laser fire or what have you. Uh, and the third one was called Job Simulator. And it was just this ludicrous, wacky, cartoony uh, thing where, you know, I guess the premise is that, you know, hundreds or thousands of years in the future when, you know, humans are no more and, um, you know, the world is inhabited by robots. And uh, the idea is that it's like a theme park experience. So for robots, they get to experience a job like humans had thousands of years ago. And basically, you're just in this little cubicle and, you you know, you get prompts to do things like staple some papers or open a drawer or press buttons on a computer keyboard and i think the keyboard has maybe three one two or three like just giant buttons because you don't have the level of fidelity for a, a fine-grained keyboard yep. and it you know very cartoony very unrealistic graphics and it was the most immersive experience out of all of them mm. and you know i think there's a few reasons why that that was and, and one of them was that when something tries to show you photorealistic graphics and they're not photorealistic your brain rejects it Right. And you got the whole thing about like the uncanny valley when something is just wacky and cartoony, you just forget all of that and you're just there and you enjoy it. And, and you know, to the extent that I remember taking my headset off my headset, taking the headset off at the end of that demo. And I found it so jarring and um, the experience of sort of coming back to reality that it was quite it was it was quite disorienting in a way. So it, it's mm. interesting how those those experiences and um you know, that immersion and, uh, and, you know, depth of experience can, can be controlled by, you know, lots of things, but one of them isn't necessarily how photorealistic it is. And I, and I say this because this will have an impact on, on, a, on a lot of things that we might talk about. I want to go back a little yeah. bit though. And, and, um, in fact, let me, let me talk a little bit about this quest three launch uh, last week. So the quest line of products is now owned and made by Meta who used to be Facebook. And when they were Facebook, they acquired mm -hmm. Oculus. And Oculus was founded by some people. And one of the early people to get on board and start working with them is uh, John Carmack. Do you know who John Carmack is? No, name doesn't ring a bell. Okay. So he is the founder of ID Software and the creator of Doom, the okay. game Doom. Yep. Yeah. So in fact, let me, let me go back. Let me, you know, I'm going to go back a few steps. I'm going to start at the beginning, right? Back in the 1800s, in fact, since really as far as we have any kind of record, 
human beings have fantasized about being somewhere where they're currently not right so we have yep. stories lots of lots of um cultural traditions of uh, you know having visions or astral projection or, or experiences of a reality that is not your current reality that you're sharing with physically with those around you mm -hmm. and if we look at um, religious stories like you know in the bible there are there are stories of people being removed from their present current reality and you know being able to experience something else so this is kind of a, a primal human drive in my opinion this is something that has been around for a long time and there's a reason why i'm saying all this and the reason why i'm going this far back coming much much more recently you can see the roots of what's our current vr technology as far back as the 1800s right yeah so one of the foundational principles of vr technology is this principle of stereoscopy right so the idea of stereoscopy is that you show one image to one eye and another image to another eye and they're they're offset from each other just enough to give you the feeling as if you know one eye you know this image was coming from one eye and the other eye if you were there looking at it right because this is how mm. your brain creates a sense of depth this is it's yep. not the only way but one of the ways that your brain has depth perception is uh through an effect called parallax and parallax is the difference in uh the image between one eye and the other and that's yes. how your brain calculates depth you know, we also use that in uh, a scientific instrument called an interferometer, and you can use that for getting a parallax effect, effect of measuring how far away a star is or, or some other astronomical object. That's one of the ways that, uh, one of the most important ways that, that your brain does depth perception. Now, this concept of having a stereoscopic image, it, it has been around since, in technology form, since the 1800s. Uh, so back in the 1800s, uh, there was a particular kind of device called a stereoscope, uh, where yeah. it would have two pictures taken at a certain distance apart and shown, you would look into it and it would show one to one eye and one to the other, and people would marvel at it and go, wow, there's depth, it's 3D. Yeah. Um, so yes, this, this is not a new thing. This this kind of, this 3D um, view through uh, these stereoscopes, as I said, been around since, since the 1800s. Now, as it happens, there's actually a... Um, a kind of cult following of this particular class of device and, and this vintage technology. And one of the most prominent collectors of these devices is Brian May. Uh, Queen fame. Yeah, Brian May, Queen fame. Yep. Yeah, so he's a, he's an avid collector of stereoscopes. So this is like, this is the 1800s, right? Now, coming back in, uh, moving forward into the 20th century, there was a device that you may be familiar with from your childhood. I know I am, and, and I'm sure many people are. What may surprise you is, is when this thing came out. Um, it's called Viewmaster. Do you remember these? It's a it's a little thing that you hold up to your your eyes, and you put this wheel in it, right? Yep. And the yep. wheel has these different slides, and you click a button. You and click it turns the button. On. Yeah. Yep. And I don't know if you remember, but those things had depth because they were three D. You had a different slide one to each other. They were I guess they were on opposite sides of the wheel. So as it turns round, you get you get these different pictures. Mm. Yeah, that was a cool toy. You don't see them around much anymore. Um, I had one as a kid. Um, did you know that that thing came out in 1939? No, no idea. Yeah. So you know this 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 stereoscopy is not um, is not new. Um, moving forward a bit more, 1980s certainly that's when um, we grew up. Mm -hmm. Did you did you have a toy a, a little um, electronic game as a kid called Atomitronic? Do you remember this? No, no, that doesn't ring a bell. Okay. This was when I was a kid. This was like all the range. If you it, it, all the rage, if you had one of these, you were cool, and everyone wanted one. What it was, right? It was a kind of triangular shaped uh, device 
like it was like a pair of binoculars right at one end and the other end came to a point and it was a stereoscopic lcd uh you remember the lcd games that you had in the 80s yeah like the game boy no no pre-game boy like the game and watch oh, type things. oh like the donkey kong yes ones. yeah so it was that kind of thing. So, so it wasn't like a dot matrix display. It was a, it was a fixed LCD display, fixed image LCD yeah, display. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the way that it worked was it was stereoscopic. So it had one image in one eye, one in the other. And it had this like little skylight thing on top of it. So there was this little translucent panel. So you had to be in a well-lit room or well-lit area to play it. So you can, you know, you could go and stand outside and you have daylight through it. And you look through and there was little buttons and you could control things. And there was different games. There was one that was like a Space Invaders uh, type game. There was another one that was like a race, uh, you know, a racing car game. And there was another one that was uh, called Shark Attack, where, you know, you're a diver and you've got sharks swimming towards you and you've got to shoot them or dodge them. Mm -hmm. And at one point, this particular version was marketed as Jaws 3D. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yep. So, yeah, the, the, the reason I'm uh, giving you all this background is to, is to really drive the point home that this is something that people have clearly been very interested in for a long time and it's kind of mm. a, an idea that doesn't go away right yep well then we get into the but, sorry i feel a butt coming along no well, there's a butt coming a bit later right so get, getting into what we now currently would would call as virtual reality so experiments with that kind of technology started around the 1960s so so in the 19 uh, yeah, early 1960s there was a device called sensorama um, which is often considered one of the earliest forms of uh, virtual reality. It wasn't interactive, but it was, you know, it had a lot of the other features that we consider part of VR. And from there, over the next 30 years, we get to 1990. Okay. Now, 1990, mm -hmm. a, a company became quite prominent called Virtuality, Virtuality Group. Do you remember them? Were they the ones that you'd see at the arcades? Yes, exactly. They had the big, the big setup. Yes, I do remember those ones. I don't think I ever played them. I always looked on looked on in awe mm. watching everyone else do it, but I never had that opportunity. Yeah, I played them. I, I loved them. And there was very a lot of different games you could play. So, so yeah, so the 1990s was really the start of, of what we would consider modern virtual reality. So it was this idea that you had some kind of controller in your hands and you had this headset. And this headset would allow you to freely move your head in any direction and look around, and then you could interact with and move through a virtual world. So yeah, virtuality, they, they were prominent at arcades, expos, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. There was, in the UK at least, uh, God, I can't remember the name of it, Cyberzone. There was a TV show, a game show called Cyberzone in the UK. Um, and it was yeah. uh, hosted by Craig Charles. I don't know if you know who he is. No. He was, he was uh, did you ever watch Red Dwarf? No, that's, I may be a nerd, but there are some parts of being a nerd that I actually didn't, didn't partake in. Right. Okay. Anyway. He's one of the actors from Red Dwarf, and uh, he hosted this this game show. And the game show was basically various teams would come on and compete against each other in virtual reality games. So that was the 1990s. And then uh, there was also another product that was kind of semi-well-known. It, it's kind of, um, it's considered a classic now, which was the Nintendo Virtual Boy. And that came out in the mid-90s. And that was just a, a, a monochrome stereoscopic Game Boy. It was terrible. It made people feel sick. Um, there was no game strip. It wasn't, you could, you didn't wear it, yeah. right? You stood it on a little stand and then you looked into it and then you, you, you know, you controlled it. Um, but obviously <laughs> there's a lot of nostalgia for that now, even though it's, it's terrible, but yeah, so, so virtuality. So it, it, you know, people loved it. A lot of people loved it, but it never took off. And there's a few reasons why it never took off. 
The first reason was that the motion tracking was not good. And motion tracking is still, uh, you know, motion tracking is light years ahead of that now with what we have yeah. with, with modern VR. But, you know, it, it's still an, an issue for some people. Now, the motion tracking on the virtuality systems of the 1990s was a lot worse. And, and a lot of people would get motion sickness, so they couldn't play it. When you say worse, right, there's two degrees of worse that I can think of. One would be latency and lag. Yeah. And the other would be resolution. Uh, no, no. Okay. I'm just talking about tracking. Right? When I say resolution in that space, I do mean for tracking, right? So tracking. if I move the slightest amount. Right. So fine-grained fine movements, you mean? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's a third, a third one, which is accuracy, right? Yep. If you look up, you don't want the picture to change as if you're looking down. Yep. Yeah. So all of those things weren't great. Now, I didn't notice any of those issues when I played because I was so immersed in the experience that I just didn't care. I did, literally didn't even notice, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons, so two, two reasons why that, that didn't take off at the time. One was the tracking being not good enough and the other was the graphics being not good enough. And there was, there was two reasons why the graphics weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about those a bit more. But in a nutshell, you know, the resolution was too low, you know, as in the, the actual number of pixels. And the other was that stuff just looked terrible. Like you just had these big blocks, right? Yep. So, you know, you had the issue. The issue was the polygon count and, you know, there was no texture mapping back then. And texture mapping isn't, wasn't quite good enough for VR either. But we'll, we'll come, I'll come to that as well. So, yeah, so it, it just didn't take off. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, also in the time since then, consumer electronics have all moved into the home. So the most successful consumer electronics now are things like iPhones, iPads, Android yep. devices, laptops, and the, not necessarily the Meta Quest 3 because it's just come out, but the, the Quest 2 was very successful. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that as well. So yeah, so VR really didn't go anywhere from the 1990s up until really 2000 and the early 2010s. So Oculus, which is the company that later Facebook acquired and then became part of Meta that John Carmack w was involved with. They started off with a Kickstarter in 2012, and the mm -hmm. 2012 was for a device called the Oculus Rift, and that might be that yeah. first gen one that you tried, right? I think it was. Yeah, and that worked a bit differently. Uh, that worked with a camera for tracking. I, there weren't any controllers with that first version. It was it was a seated experience with a keyboard and mouse. Yep, I believe that rings a bell. Yeah. So so in the time in between, what changed? Right. What what were the big advances that that let VR becomes some a viable technology again. Well, obviously changes in tracking. So those old virtuality headsets, they used um, various inertial sensors and ultrasonics. Uh, now ultrasonics are, are very fast, but they're not as fast as what we use now, which is optics, right? Yep. Uh, and not as fine grained, not as accurate, <clears throat> any of that sort of stuff. So the tracking was already way ahead with what they're doing in 2012. And now we're 11 years beyond that. And the tracking is, is really good now. And I'll talk about some of my experiences with tracking. The other is graphics. And with graphics, you know, a bunch of things have improved. One is that the resolution is higher, obviously. Two is the polygon count is higher. So you get more re realistic and you know better shapes like you don't just get disconnected blobs moving kind of in con yep. concert with each other you get actual physical objects like mm -hmm. a person right or a robot mostly and the other the other one is well when you know when these virtuality things were on the scene we didn't even have texture maps we had just solid color shapes yeah and then you know around that same time in the 1990s 3d graphics got texture maps and this is what we saw with like doom and those kind of games of that era Mm -hmm. uh, texture mapping is when you get an image file and you map it onto the surface of a 3D object. So let's say, for example, yep. I've got a wall. Um, rather than have a 3D object 
you know, uh, with the contoured surface of individual bricks, you just take a, you get a picture of some bricks and you just get a flat surface and you put the picture of the bricks on the flat surface. That's a crude example. Yep. Um, now, even that really wasn't, wasn't quite good enough for VR. Like, and there's a reason for that. And that will become clear when I explain a, a shift that happened in graphics technology, uh, you know, in the 2000s. And that was the move from texture maps to shaders mm-hmm. or pixel shaders. Yep. And this is something that happened simultaneously between graphics hardware manufacturers like NVIDIA and software, you know, graphics software, game software. And there was a, I guess the watershed moment for shaders was with the first version of the game Unreal. Yep. Um, I don't know if you remember when that came out, but when there was pictures of the water in Unreal, people were blown away. Like the water Mm. effect in Unreal was mind blowing at the time. And obviously things have got a lot better since. And around the same time uh, was uh, Doom 3. So Doom 3 was one of the first games to really capitalize on shaders as well. Now, the difference between pixel shaders and and texture maps is that with a texture map, you've just literally got a static image that is mapped onto the surface of a 3D object. With with pixel shaders, what you have instead is a, a material that can respond differently under different conditions. And most importantly, in the context of VR... And in games in general, you know, the immersion that you get as a result of this and the graphics fidelity in games in general, but crucial for VR is that when you look at something from a different angle, it changes and responds in the way that you're looking at it. So, you know, I mean, obviously we're not talking about ray tracing, you know, graphics cards now that we have at home do support ray tracing, and, mm-hmm. and, and but we're not talking about that, but even just lighting effects, knowing that if I've got light source, if I've got three points, light source, object, camera, if the position of those three things changes, the way that the thing looks needs to change. And you yes. can't do that with texture maps, but you can do it with shaders. Mm-hmm. So these two things, specifically the move from polygons, texture maps, shaders, in concert with the move from ultrasonic tracking technology to optical tracking technology, those are the things that made, in the 2010s, VR a viable technology. So we've spoken about Oculus and the Rift, uh, and there was a Kickstarter and there was development ones. 2016 was the year that it came to the consumer mainstream. Now, I say mainstream, uh, so the HTC Vive came out, um, but so did the PlayStation VR. Now, the PlayStation VR was was a lot more accessible. It was not as sophisticated. It had one screen that just just showed a different image on the left and right side, as opposed to the the HTC Vive, which had two distinct screens. The resolution wasn't as good. It also used a form of optical tracking, but basically a camera that tracked the position of lights on the headset. Whereas the the HTC Vive used a system which is still considered the best VR tracking system today, which is what they call the Lighthouse system. And that is effectively a passive infrared system that saturates your room with infrared beams. And your headset reads those and and knows where it is and responds to those and sends that information back to your computer. Now, the HTC Vive cost $1,300, I know, because I bought one at that price. Um, plus, you needed a high-end PC to play it. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Like, I just loved it. Now, it didn't take off that much because it was expensive. And also, by today's standards, you know, it has it had what was called screen door effect. And that's because of the types of lenses they used. I'm, I'm not going to start talking about these now. But the type of lenses that were popular at the time called Fresnel lenses. And now yep. they use what's called pancake lenses or aspheric lenses. So the Fresnel lenses, the ones with the little rings in them. So a combination of that and the low resolution gave you a bunch of things that like glare and, and screen door effect and that sort of stuff. So that wasn't that great. You know, people didn't think it was that great. It was also heavy. You know, the the games catalog wasn't that exciting and so on and so forth. So it it was moderately successful, but it didn't really take off. Various other things came out a bit later on. 2018, an important milestone was the Oculus Go came out. 
Now, the difference between the Oculus Go and, you know, things like the PlayStation and the HTC Vive was it was a complete standalone headset. Yeah, didn't require okay. anything else. You put it on, you play it, mm-hmm. right? And then a year later, uh, the Quest came out, the Oculus Quest, because it was still Oculus. And then a year after that, 2020, the Quest 2 came out. Now, we've reached the point in the story where it starts to get really interesting, right? 2020, the Quest 2 comes out. Facebook buy them, right? They mm-hmm. fight, they're Oculus. They start talking about the metaverse and social. The, the term metaverse has been around since, I think, 2014, by the way. I don't know the exact date. It was used in a, we used in a paper. There was a VR, enthus- academic VR enthusiast group that got together, and the, the term came out yep. of that, that meeting, which I think was 2014. But yeah, so they, they start peddling the word metaverse. They changed the name to meta, and, and VR exploded. Millions and millions of these headsets got sold. I actually have to check those actual numbers. But a lot of these headsets got sold, people buying them, people talking about, you know, VR has landed, it's taking off, and it, it's going to be huge. But there's some interesting things to note about this, right? And there's some interesting things to note about why the Quest 2 was so successful. You know, the tracking isn't as good as Lighthouse tracking. Uh, you know, the graphics is not as good. We could talk about a number of reasons why, you know, why is the Quest 2 so successful, whereas something like the HTC Vive or, you know, newer better pc vr headsets that have come out since why were they not as successful and there's some reasons for this one of those reasons is look at the year it was smack bang in the middle of covid everyone's stuck at home you know it perfect perfect moment for vr to take off facebook bought this company so they literally sold it to everyone they advertised it on their platform uh, it became a great option for a christmas present that year and one of the other reasons was the price it was it was very low price and again, part of the reason for this is that Facebook couldn't can subsidize it because to them it's a platform. It's a platform for game royalties and revenue that way. Plus, you know, Facebook really want Metaverse mm. and VR to be a productivity tool and a business tool. And you can see the products that came after that, like the Quest Pro, um, which came out earlier this year. Was it last year? I've lost track. It's all it's all a blur. And now some of the technology that that, that they've brought into the Quest Three, which came out last week. So where we're at is that uh, two years ago, two, three years ago, we have this explosion of sales in the VR headset. Did you know that something like 75 to 80% of them just sat on people's shelves and didn't even get used? And, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's some very, very small percentage of Quest 2 mm. owners. So the Quest 2 is the most prolific VR headset in the world, like the, by a big margin. Even if you look at Steam surveys, and people playing PC VR gaming, they play them with it with a, this mm. Quest Two headset. See, yeah. That that doesn't surprise me. That stat. I think part of my hesitation for buying anything anything like that or anything in that realm is because I know I'd be one of those statistics, right? Yeah, I'd play with it for the first week, and then it'd end up on my shelf, and I wouldn't. I'd, I would have spent thirteen hundred bucks on uh, um, an ornament that sits on the shelf yeah. for the next three or four yeah. years, and that's what happened, right? So. The sales of the Quest 2 were, were blew everyone away. Uh, there was a lot of hype about VR and the metaverse and all this and a lot of promise, but all that came was disappointment, right? So my question is, did VR come too quickly? Is it here too soon and we're not ready for it? Or, or is it all just overblown hype? You know, a lot of, <laughs> it's quite funny. There is like a lot of VR web uh, blogs and, and some YouTubers that I follow. And there's always the is VR dead question coming up in, you know, from more mainstream media or more mainstream technology publications that aren't just VR focused. You know, this question always comes up, you know, was it all hype and is it, is it all bullshit? You know, does, is VR just no good? Is it just not a good technology? And the answer and the answer, in my opinion, is that's not 
that's not true at all. VR is awesome and it has a lot of awesome applications, but it requires a level of dedication. Like this is the thing is as a busy working father, as you are and as I am, I find it hard enough to find time to sit down and just play a video game, a regular video game. Exactly. And that, again, that's my point that you end up buying them and they sit there because you don't actually have time. Or when you find that you've finally got some time to play the game or to, to play, you don't have yeah. the hours to invest in a session sitting down to play the game. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And when you think about VR and it's that next level where it's not just, I've got five minutes, I'm going to fire up the PC or the console or what have you. It's like, no, no, I've got a clear space. I've mm -hmm. got to make sure everything's right. I've got to set up, you know, so on and so forth. So I, I think there are some challenges for VR to overcome. Now, in terms of this entertainment market, it's still the most used, VR as a technology is most used in gaming, um, mm -hmm. you know, entertainment, but there are uh, other applications. You know, like if you look at AR, you know, you saw Microsoft try to do it with the, the HoloLens. Uh, the HoloLens. Yep. Um, and again, you know, Meta tried to do it more recently with the uh, Quest Pro. They're trying to do it again with the Quest 3. We've got Apple trying to do it now with the Vision Pro. Yep. This augmented reality, use it as a productivity thing. So I think it has a future there too. Now, imagine if someone had come along in 2020 and invented a plugin for Teams that let you have VR Teams meetings during COVID. I don't know. I, I'm not sold. You know? I'm not sold. Um, okay. But so I'm, I'm the kind of person that's sort of when Facebook announced yeah. their push for the metaverse, I looked at that with a very skeptical eye. Okay. And I thought, this is not going to work. It's what are you talking about? What are you doing? I'm not the target demographic for that okay. kind of stuff, right? Yep. Yeah, fair enough. I can appreciate, right, okay. yes, there's probably some people out there that think that would that, that would be ideal for. But for me, I mean, I just, I'm happy with the video, right? I don't know. Maybe I could be sold. Okay. And by all means, if anyone Let's wants say... to give me a uh, Quest 3 headset, I'm happy to, <laughs> to have my arm twisted. Yeah. Well, the problem as it stands now, I don't know if I'm going to be investing any of my cash buying a device for productivity reasons. Yeah. And that's that's the problem, right? Is no one has no one has showed us anything uh, that you can do productivity wise with a VR headset that you can't do without it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. I have seen when I was working at Lendlease, there were people there doing demos of being able to walk through buildings using the VR and being able to go through yeah. the 3D renderings of a, a building that's yeah. yet to be built. That's cool. I can appreciate and I can see the value in that kind of stuff from a yeah. an interior design point of view, from an architectural point of view, for being able to walk around to figuring out your facilities, like where the plumbing is and being able to, what, what does the headspace actually look like in that virtual reality space? And I can see that there's value there. Yep. Yeah. Well, what about, what about, you know, going into a building that you're designing and, you know, just not being sure about, do I want the, the reception desk on that side or that side? You just move it exactly, you know, in real time in 3D in that space. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value there, but at the same time, right? Yeah. There are apps for your phone where you can do something similar and, you know, try new um, artwork on your wall or, yeah. you know, I think Ikea might even have one to visualize the, yeah. the couch in your living room. They do. Yeah. Again, yeah. I've never used it. I don't know. I just, every time I've looked at anything like okay. that, they, they're just lacking. It's just not quite there. So fair enough. Yeah. Now, now that I think those apps are awesome and you're right. 
that they're right absolutely doing and you're also right that uh, you know doing it in a vr headset it, it's the same thing but it, but it's a different experience and it takes that experience to a different level and a different level of depth but the problem is it's not something that you can't do without it right it's something that you can do better with it but it's not something you can do without it can't do without it right yeah and this is the problem and this is what we haven't seen you know certainly in the productivity space there are certainly things that we've seen that come close like you know the idea of you know let's say you're in surgery and you're looking at your patient and you can overlay in 3d a scan of you know their brain showing you where a particular lesion is that you need to operate mm -hmm. on or there's a demo by um Thyssen Group uh with hololens have you seen this this demo i think i remember seeing one that was a um for medical students no where you could actually visualize the body in front of you and you could walk around yeah. it and you could look at all the different um the different systems of the body yeah I, i've actually tried that demo i tried that um build a few years ago mm -hmm. um and that was awesome but no tyson group they they uh their their demo is for uh lift maintenance like elevator maintenance okay yep uh, and the, the the idea here is that these techni technicians can walk into an elevator to service it and call up the service manual and actually overlay the schematics in 3D in the real space, um, you know, to re yeah. repair things. So there's things like that, that that are really cool. But the challenge is the cha as I said, the challenge is showing someone something that you know just blows you away and says makes you say I have to have it, you know. And and we haven't had that yet, you know. That means that it's an enthusiast technology, not something that's for, for everyone it's for people like me that just say yes that's cool and i want to invest the time and effort mm -hmm. into enjoying it not in the same way that you know a phone you just have to have it like a mobile phone or a smartphone you just have to have it a laptop you just have to have it right even in games right even in vr gaming there has been a grand total of one game that has really managed to do something with the technology that you just can't do otherwise. Like there's a lot of games in VR that are great fun and like really good in VR and, and certainly VR takes them to a level of depth that you can't have without them. And there are a lot of games that have interactions in mm -hmm. VR that use of the, the, the immersive space and make use of you having full 3D access with your hands to an object. Okay. But these are all things that you can could do without it if you wanted to. There's only one really that and clones of it that really makes use of that technology and does something that you can't do without it, and that's Beat Saber. Have you ever played Beat Saber or heard of it? No. Wouldn't surprise you. No, I've never played it. Okay. So Beat Saber is a very simple game. You're standing on a platform. It's a rhythm beat matching game. You got two lightsabers, one in each hand. And you get different blocks mm -hmm. that come towards you in time with the rhythm of the music and you just have to slash them in rhythm very very simple yep. concept very powerful and it's not something that you could do outside of vr like you could emulate it like in, if you think about what you have with like arcade games like the dancing games you could have a big screen in front of you and you could stand there with these two sticks and you could have things coming towards you on the screen and you could swipe at them but it's not the, it's not the same because you don't have that depth perception you don't have the range of motion to be able to, uh, you know, slice through something in front of you and reach across to slice something, it, you know, it, it really does. Yeah. It's a game interaction mechanic that, that just couldn't work without VR. Sure. And it's the only one that we've seen so far. Mm. So on that, what's your go-to game? That's a good question. My go-to game is probably, look, I, I only get short bursts of time to play VR mm -hmm. at the moment. When I want to, you know, when I've got more time, 
I wouldn't necessarily have a go-to game because it, there's a lot of different games that I want to just keep playing and keep trying. So when I have more time, you know, I, I, I tend to experiment and, and play as much as I can. Uh, there's, you know, VR's kind of killer AAA showcase game is called Half-Life Alex, which is fantastic. And I often replay that. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, there's a, there's an endless list of games that I want to play. But my, my go-to games, and I'll narrow it down to three, for when I've just got short um, bursts of time, would be probably fitness related stuff. So so Beat Saber is one, is the one I mentioned. Um it's a really good cardio workout. Mm-hmm. And especially if you play it on more challenging. This is the thing is, you know, with, with a game like that, you're not sitting in a chair, you're moving around very physically. And the other one would be Creed, as in, you know, the, the Rocky spin-off. Yep. Um so it's a boxing game. Uh, again, very challenging. Um, you know, really gets your heart rate going and yeah, you, know, you can just be absolutely smashed afterwards. Another one is on, on my headset when I, you know, when I, the headset that I've got now is called Pico 4 and I use it almost exclusively for PC VR gaming, but it is also a standalone all-in-one headset and it's got a, a sports game on it as well that I often use, which lets you do some boxing, archery, yeah. tennis, you know, all kinds of things. So yeah, so that's what I use it for. I also sometimes watch it to use movies, um, uh, use it to watch movies. I wasn't going to correct you. You know, one of the things that you can do with it is be in a virtual cinema. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think I've been to a cinema since before the pandemic. So, you know, sometimes if I want to get that real big screen experience, I can put on my VR headset mm. and I can just watch, it, watch a movie on a giant screen. Do they do 3D movies for VR? Or yeah, is it just they absolutely do. No, no, they do. So there's... so. If you remember 10-ish years ago, 3D movies were all the rage. Mm-hmm. So it was IMAX and then even, you know, regular cinemas would, would give you 3D glasses and you'd watch movies in 3D. Yep. Of course, that was all spurred by, spurned on by Avatar when that came out. Yep. Um, so that kind of made, that started the 3D movie trend, which didn't really take off. I had a 3D TV at home oh, at one point and you could watch those movies mm. on a 3D Blu-ray. Didn't take off. Um, again, didn't really take off. But those movies are still around and you can watch them on these headsets in, yep. in 3D. But there are also immersive 3D movies as well. One of them, at least one of them, made by James Cameron. He's a big fan of it, of that kind of approach. There are some other well-known filmmakers that have done that kind of thing. And then there are some, you know, VR artists, I guess, who have made VR uh, non-interactive experiences that, that are equivalent to movies that you can, you, you know, you watch yeah. in a 3D space. So just to jump back there, you said immersive 3D. How's that different than standard 3D? So standard 3D is if you think about those 3D movies like Avatar, where you sit and you watch a movie on a screen, but that movie has some depth. Yep. So immersive is when you're in it. So you can look around and it's all around you. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So why am I saying all this? And why am I saying, why did I go into all that depth of all that background? The reason is that I am excited about VR and I'm absolutely confident that VR is not going anywhere. And, you know, you get a lot of analysts and especially, you know, on the Wall Street side and especially people that like to invest in the latest trend because obviously trends Mm -hmm. are indicative of something that you can make a fast buck from. So when VR exploded in 2020, 2021, a lot of people thought this was the new big thing. And because it's not the new big thing and because it hasn't reached the heights that people wanted it to, you know, that leads people, particularly in publications written or read by Wall Street types to say VR is dead. When what they actually mean is that that bubble that they thought was going to come along never materialized. But VR, since really since John Carmack and co revived it 11 years ago, at its core, it's a technology that is used by and driven by a bunch of very, very passionate enthusiasts. And that's just not going anywhere. And based on the history lesson you've given us today, I would have to agree, right? Right. I I don't see it hitting the mainstream that Meta would like it to. No. And I 
I don't know. I feel that there's a bit of an acceptance in the industry that no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. At least anytime soon. Yeah. But you're right. I think it's still, there's still relevance there. It's still an industry. It's still a product space that is going to make money. And because it's going to make money, it's still going to be around. Yep. Maybe not as much as what Meta would like it to. Yep. But I still say, I can't see it dying off. But yeah, it's, do I see myself buying a Quest 3? Likely not. Yep. Do I see myself maybe down the track buying the next iteration or another generation down the track? Maybe. Maybe when my kids get old enough and they start wanting to play games, I might sort of push them down that path. Yeah. But I don't see it being a productivity tool that I'm going to be rushing out to buy to increase my productivity. Yeah. Maybe not, but, you know, also potentially you're not like this. This is the thing is, you know, sometimes the technology comes along and it's really great for certain use cases. Let's look at, uh, te- let's talk about telepresence suites. Do you remember these? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is, now we call them Teams rooms, but there used to be this this idea of a telepresence suite. And Cisco had this, um, they had this setup, right, where you'd have a room and the room would have three big screens at the front of the room. Mm-hmm. And it would have a semicircle donut table, uh, you, know, uh, you know, with those screens, that wall at one end, and people would sit around it and it have cameras, right? Yeah. And all of these rooms were, were identical. Yep. So when you had a telepresence conference with someone else and they're also in one of those rooms, it just looked like that that semicircle table completed a full circle when you look through those screens. So that's kind of how that worked. Sure. Clever, awesome yep. idea, right? Very successful, profitable, made a lot of money, great productivity tool. But was it something that was yep. going to be mainstream? And was it something that millions or billions of consumers were going to buy? No, and and not everything has to be. And I think a technology like VR, you know, the, the, the mistake was that people thought that it was going to explode and be a massive consumer technology. Now, it actually is an invaluable productivity tool for a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of it's used in training. It's used by them in the military for training all the time. It's used uh, by firefighters. It's yep. used in medicine. It's used in product design. And it's changed the way people work. And it would be unimaginable for a lot of people to go back to not having VR. But it's not it hasn't ha- hit that mainstream success. Now, will it one day? I think it will. Um, but but there are some barriers that it needs to overcome. One is price. Obviously, it's still expensive. That's changing a lot now. A lot of these standalone headsets are inexpensive. But the trade-off is that, you know, they lack a lot of things. Uh, see, this is the other thing is, you know, people saw the, the Quest 2 and they put it on and they thought, these graphics, is this what VR has to offer? Not realizing that, no, VR has a lot yeah. more than that to offer. But you basically, you've got a chip from a mobile phone in this VR headset, there's only so much it can do, yeah. right? So, you know, when you get where, when the cost yeah. to quality ratio gets right, you know, people's perceptions might change. There's the weight, it's got to get a lot smaller. You know, right, right now, you know, even the, the smallest and lightest, the most comfortable headsets. Actually, there's one that came out this year called the Big Screen Beyond, which is very small and very light to the point where people don't notice they're wearing it. Um, it, you know, it has literally just an elastic strap to hold it on. That's how yeah. light it is. Oh, wow. But it but it makes some compromises to achieve that. Um, so, you know, when we get to a point where, you know, right now you're wearing a pair of glasses that um, mm-hmm. I'm going to say you probably don't even notice you're wearing, but literally as I was about to say that, you push them back up your nose. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But most of the time you don't notice they're there, right? Sure. So we, when we can get to a VR headset that, that's that level of comfort and you don't notice it, maybe people will be more into it. But the other, the, the biggest barrier in my mind at the moment, and the thing that breaks immersion for a lot of people <clears throat> is that if you want to play VR at the moment, you need a lot of space. 
because if you don't have a lot of space to move around in, you're just, you know, rooted to the spot and and that breaks the immersion for a lot of people. And especially in most of these systems, you have what's called like a chaperone system or a virtual barrier um, that if you move towards it, these glowing grid appears and says, you know, don't bump into this wall or that table or what have you. You, you set up yeah, those yeah. those spaces yourself but as you know if you've got a space that's so small that they're always on that's just going to ruin the experience for you mm-hmm. so you know one, one thing that might change is that you know we might have some kind of vr treadmill where you can just walk an infinite distance in any direction that you know again you, you have these things now but they're hundreds yep. of thousands of dollars there's a smaller consumer alternative called a slide mill where you basically have an optical mouse in your shoes and you've got this little dish and these slidey shoes that you just kind of slide around in it rather than actually walking. Yeah. So, you, you know, who knows? But if those are the things that I think are the barriers to, make, you know, proper mainstream adoption, adoption of this technology. And if those things, if those problems can be solved, and there's certainly no reason to believe that they can't be, VR could be a huge consumer technology. And, you know, the other thing that we've got to bear in mind, right, is that, you know, you might say, I'm happy enough with video, I just don't want it, yep. you know. But a lot of people didn't want portrait orientation videos. Everyone that's ever had the slightest interest in making video has always said stop shooting your videos in portrait right. just turn your phone to the side yeah. um and then tiktok said no nah, don't can't beat them just join them and you know mm-hmm. it, now it's massive and there are billions of people yeah. making billions of dollars from these portrait videos so you know we, we just don't know what people will want next no what could become mainstream so what's your prediction then in the way of I guess extra productivity use cases. Yeah. And the follow up to that then would also be sort of what about gains? Where do you see those going? Okay. Are they just iterations on where we're at at the moment? Or are we seeing new genres coming out, different styles? Yeah. There's, there's, I think there's a very similar answer to both those questions, right? So to answer the first question, in terms of productivity, I think there are specific use cases where having immersion, and if you remember what I said earlier, the difference between immersion and depth, immersion is being able to be in there and look around. There are specific productivity use cases where that kind of immersion really does add value that you don't get without it. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, in terms of mainstream, which is, I think, what you, your actual question was, if we get to a point where I can call you on Teams or ping you on Teams and say, let's have a chat, let's... You know, like at the moment, right, I, I might call you and say, I'm stuck with this bug. Can you help me? And you'll say yes. And we'll, we'll pair up together, right? And then I'll share my screen and we'll go through some code and what have you. But imagine if instead of that, we could just both put a pair of glasses on and then literally mm-hmm. be sitting next to each other looking over a laptop. And you could have your laptop there as well. And, and you could say, wait, look at this. And, and we wouldn't have to mm-hmm. take turns sharing screen and picking the right screen. Oh, no, I'm just the wrong window. That's the wrong screen. So on and so have you. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because that makes me think. Obviously, once we had, we all had COVID, we all had to work from home. Everyone had to adjust to Teams meetings, Zoom meetings, and you know, not not interacting as closely as what we were used to beforehand. Right? Yeah. Now I yep. remember when the lockdowns started to loosen up, and we were allowed to book desks in the office and book meeting rooms. Yeah. And at that point in time. There was a group, there was three or four of us that we booked a, we booked this meeting room just for a brainstorming session, just to get our head around a challenging problem we had. And in that process, all of us walked out of that saying there is absolutely no way we would have achieved what we wanted to. Yeah. What we did achieve purely online. We had to be in the room bouncing ideas off each other with the whiteboard, going up, scribbling out what's on there, grabbing the texture, drawing down, drawing out, and yeah. just 
as much as we've got those online tools, um, virtual whiteboards, Teams meetings, and all that interactivity, we still couldn't replicate being physically in that yeah. same room brainstorming as such. That's right. Do you see VR being able to help out in that space? 100% I do. Because if you think about everything that you just said, right, what you said is that those tools, like having interactive whiteboards, having video, having all this sort of stuff, what it's trying to do is it's trying to replicate that experience of being in a room together and it's getting closer. Like if you think about how, you know, we used to have a phone call and now we have a Teams call and, you know, now we have whiteboards in the Teams call and we can share screens as well as see each other. And we're just getting closer and closer and closer to that experience of being in the same physical space as one another. And VR lets us will let us do that. What you just said about there was an outcome that you were able to achieve by being in that space together that you wouldn't have been able to achieve without being there together, even with the online tools available. There will come a time and uh, there will come a time very soon. And by very soon, I mean five years where that barrier will disappear. And for people that want to do it, you'll be able to pick up a headset or pick up an experience and work with people as if you're in the same room. Now, you know, for us, people like us during COVID lockdowns, where it's like, well, you know, we're all at home, so we can't be in a space together. That's one thing. And now, you know, those COVID restrictions have gone away and we can do that. But there are other situations where you can't. Like last week, I was working with one of my colleagues in an office in China for an Australian client, and we spent three days working together. Um, now, as it happens, we, we divided up the work and we both got on with different things most of the time, but mm -hmm. there was a fair bit of time when we were on calls together and we were struggling to get through what we were trying to get through because of that barrier. And VR could have solved that problem. Well, the VR that I envisage coming within the next five years, that scenario that I described would solve that problem, right? Even even within Australia, you know what it's like. We've got offices, we've got four offices in Australia at the moment. Mm -hmm. And you know, we often work with people across in teams across those different offices. Yep. And, you know, we, ha we have a, a daily scrum call every day and, you know, we call each other on, and work on teams all the time. But there are times where that takes longer to get through than if we'd have just been in a room together. And there will come a time, probably five years, you know, 10 tops, but but I think really five is, is probably tops as well. Within five years, we'll just slap on a VR headset and just be in a room together and whiteboard things on a physical whiteboard and, you know, show each other our laptops and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I think that will change things productivity wise. But will you still get the subtleties that you get when you're interacting with people? Right. Being able to react and see people's subtle body language that you just get when you're in that same room with each other. Yeah. Now, I, I feel that that's, I don't, well, in my head, I can't see that as yeah. something that you're ever going to yeah, overcome. Absolutely. So, well, I, I think from a technology perspective, I don't see any reason why all of that couldn't be picked up, but that's longer, longer term than what I'm talking about. But what what I'm talking about is, yes, that experience and that ability to, you know, the nonverbal cues that you pick up from someone by being in the same space as them, the, the very subtle body movements, facial movements, that kind of stuff. Even something like walking up and grabbing the, the whiteboard marker out of someone's hand. Yeah. Right. The action itself, it, it's part of that interaction, yeah. part of that whole process. Yeah, I agree. And yes, that will be... The trade-off, right? So those kind of cases, those kind of interactions, yes, we will not have those in VR soon. 
and for that very reason, you know, VR isn't going to uh, take over people spending time with each other physically. That's just not going to happen for those very reasons, right? You, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's not going to completely replace the experience of human to human interaction. It's just not. But what it is going to do is it's going to give us opportunities for interaction that we don't have without it. Is that, I, I like that distinction. I'm just wondering is, is that part of the marketing that Meta was kind of trying to push when they were talking about the metaverse, right? They yeah, were trying to say, okay, well, this is a, a virtual environment that replicates, or that you're going to experience what you could in the real world, Yeah, right? Maybe yeah. were they, was the marketing side of it trying to push it too close to reality? Absol- oh, absolutely. Like you look at a lot of the criticism of their marketing material about using footage that was not real footage that, you know, that, that was positioned as this is what the experience in VR will be like. Yeah, even things like the VR avatars having legs, like at the moment, avatars in VR, it's very difficult to do full body tracking. It's very difficult to do legs in VR, you know, things like that, you know, that... Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a big problem. But really, you know, I think what Meta did here was they did a Microsoft, right? And what Microsoft, what I mean by that is Microsoft developed mind-blowing, really cool technology that's way ahead of its time, right? And, you know, they show it off to the world and go, look how cool this is. Look at the, the potential for this. And people go, oh yeah, that, that's cool. Yep. But, you know, potential is one thing, but, you know, the reality is it's not quite there yet. Like I'll give you some, some examples. Yeah. In fact, I'll give you the biggest example, right? Tablet PC. Right. Do you remember when Microsoft started pushing tablet PC? I think it was the nineties. Yep. Right. And you know, like, you know, windows tablet edition and, you know, you can write on it and, you know, it's flat and doesn't have a keyboard or, or yes, it does have yep. a keyboard or it folds back and people are like, Oh yeah, that's cool. But you know, I can't use that. That's this, that, and the other. And then, you know, years later, Apple come along with the iPad and go, no, here's how you do a tablet, you know? And, and now, you know, tablets even now are still trying to, yeah struggling to find their place in the world and they fill a niche that doesn't need to be filled in in my view but um maybe that's a whole other discussion so you know that's what what meta did right with these headsets so look at all this and look at what's what we're going to be doing with it over time and what they should have done was what apple did which is they didn't show off prototypes they didn't show off iteration Mm -hmm. they waited until they had something that they could say no this is cool now look what we're doing with it and we're actually showing you things that we're actually doing with it and that's why we have the Vision Pro now. Because, yep. you know, Apple got burned. They learned their lesson. They got burned once yep. and they don't do it again. And that was the Newton. Do you remember the Newton? Yep. Apple Newton. Yeah. The little um, handheld. Not so little, but yeah. pilot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Way ahead of its time. Like way more advanced than anything that came out for years and years afterwards. But it was just it was just too far ahead of its time. You know, the, the use cases, the world, the, the technology wasn't caught up with their vision. And they, mm-hmm. they learned their lesson. They never did it again. Same thing with with uh, you know smartphones. You know Microsoft had Windows CE mm. and uh, not win- what was it before Windows Phone, Windows Mobile, and uh, you know and there was all these devices and yeah you know enthusiasts yep. loved them, executives loved them, you know geeks, nerds loved technology nerds yep. loved them, but they weren't mainstream. The technology wasn't good enough for mainstream, and Apple didn't bother with any of that. They waited until they had the technology that yes. was good enough for mainstream. I think the the marketing back then was. Good enough that your uh, your grandma could use it, or was it that your mum could use it? Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think that's what they were talking about. In in a nutshell, I'll wrap up because I've been yammering on and I've been bending your ear about VR, and um, no, no. you're probably sick of hearing it. But no, I'm just waiting for one to show up on my doorstep. Oh yeah, well we'll see, and then I'll then I'll give it a go. Yeah. 
but in in a nutshell oh you asked about games as well but i think the answer about games is the same is is it's got to get to that point where it's easy enough to do and it's as easy as playing any other kind of game and in terms of we were talking earlier about immersion and fidelity and graphics fidelity Mm -hmm. the the games the games don't need to have photorealistic graphics they just the, the the experiences just need to be immersive that was my that was my experience um almost 10 years ago now yeah yeah and if you look at if you look at really successful games, you know games that are praised visually as well. It's not just about graphics fidelity. Like you have some games that come out now, like some of the ones coming out now with the latest four thousand series of Nvidia graphics cards and the seventy nine series of, of uh, AMD graphics cards, and some of the games that come out this year, like Starfield and all these other things that are coming mm. out with it that just have mind mind blowing graphics, and they're great, right? But you know, if, if someone unless you're a AAA studio, it's not about making graphics and textures and and materials that high quality it's all about attention to detail and if you look at lower resolution games even you know if you you take the nintendo switch for example the nintendo switch is massively underpowered compared to other consoles you look at a game like um the the two legend of zelda games on that console you know the most recent one came out this year called tears of the kingdom it's beautiful it's absolutely stunning and the resolution is low by today's standards the graphics fidelity is low and it's all about the art direction. It's all about the, the attention to detail, and it's all about the, the art, basically. And and you know, so I I don't think we're waiting for any huge graphical jumps or boosts to make VR worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But what what we do need is the investment in the art direction and and the investment in the attention to detail. And I guess that's that's where we are now. Is in that stuck in that. What's the word? The, not vicious. It is a vicious cycle. Same thing that happened with Windows Phone with apps, right? You, you need the gamers to make developers want to come and make the games for the platform. And you need the gamers to make, you know, you need the games to make it's, the gamers come to the platform. So it's a chicken and egg situation, right? It is. Yeah, it is. And that's that's why I, I think if Meta hadn't jumped in in 2020 and like blown everything up and things had progressed more organically, we would be in a position now where people would start to be waking up and notice it, looking up and noticing VR and saying, that's really cool. That looks really interesting. Instead, we got, we got Meta shoving it down all our throats when it wasn't quite ready yet. And, and now I think a lot of people have dismissed it. Mm. And my, my concluding sentiment and feeling on the whole thing is that I'm not worried. I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah. I think give it time. It just, I, yeah. I don't think so. But I don't see it hitting mainstream anytime soon. What's your definition of anytime soon? Within the next uh, five years, five to ten. All right. So your kids are not getting a Quest Three under the Christmas tree this year. Oh no, 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 no. They're too young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not this year. So it's been a good history lesson, a good review of the uh, the VR industry. I mean, like I said at the very outset, this is not something I'm familiar with. So it's awesome to be able to to hear about it from someone as passionate as you are. Yeah, I, I've loved talking about it. I love it. <laughs> I can tell. I can, and then, you know that that's our, that's the point here, isn't it? Let's talk about things that we're both passionate about. Either one or both of us are, and I guess on that we're both passionate about beer. Yep. You know, that, look, how's that for a segue? <laughs> yeah, good segue. Yeah. <laughs> um, both quite passionate about beer. I know. Last week I said I was um, looking forward to putting a brew on this weekend, but I honestly. Didn't get around to it. The weather was just too good to be stuck in the garage brewing beer for a couple yeah. of hours. So I'll have to put that off to next week, I think. Yep. Uh, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am back on the heaps normal tonight. Yep. Um, Another big week. Yeah. 
Well, a couple of reasons. One is uh, Thursday last week, as you know, I uh, I drank a lot of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of I thought it was better to uh, give the system a rest a bit after that. Yep. And the other thing is I went for a DEXA scan on Saturday. Have you ever had a DEXA scan? I have. I've done it a yeah. couple of times. So that's, um, yeah. for the benefit of everyone, that's basically where they lay you down. They do this kind of like an x-ray, but I don't know what they use. It, it actually is an yeah. x-ray. It is an x-ray yeah. and they scan your body from uh, head to toe. And I think it originally started to measure bone density. Mm-hmm. But then what they realized out of that too was they could also see um, your muscle density, your fat density, and you can get this awesome report that tells you basically your very, well, I believe it's very precise, body fat percentage. Um, and the makeup of yeah, your muscles, bones, yeah, and your body fat, and yeah. where it is on your body. The yeah. I was going to say the the yeah, images but... that you get out of it too is really um, confronting. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I've never had one before. I got one on Saturday, and I've been I'm meaning yeah. to for years. And, and um, you, you're obviously a big fan of them. And I, I can't believe I've never got one before. I, it's something I think that. And it's inexpensive as well. It's not. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Yeah, it's something I would highly recommend for everyone. Like the level of information you get out of it is really eye-opening and really useful. It just tells you mm-hmm. so many things. Now, the, the reason that I finally pushed myself to get around and go and get it is that um, a GP that I spoke to recently told me that, uh, in a very polite way, called me a fat bastard. <laughs> um, I, I tell you, oh, we're really we're really pressing for time here, but it's a funny story. I'll tell it another time. But um, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I know that I'm overweight, but, you know, I also I work out three or four times a week and I know mm-hmm. that I'm carrying a lot of muscle and I know that I probably have denser bones than usual. And I thought, you know, something like BMI is not an accurate calculation. And I, I know I'm overweight. I know I need to lose weight, but I'm not obese, which is what he said I was. Right. Yep. So I went and got this DEXA scan expecting to be told that, yes, I'm overweight and I need to lose fat. But, you know, yes, I also have a lot of muscle and yes, I have, you know, good bone density. Now, as it happens, the the scan told me I do have a lot of muscle and I do have good bone density, but it also says that, yes, I am in fact obese. um, Sorry, I should not laugh. laugh. And it's funny because, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and I can see that I'm overweight, but I don't look obese. And I and I figured that um, it was, you know, the the, the extra muscle that I'm carrying skews the scales and makes it seem like, you know, I'm I'm, you know, heavier than I am. But it's the other way around. It actually I think it actually helps to hide how much fat I'm carrying or at least mask it. Um, And what I've. I was just going to quickly say, like, I it's been a while since I've done the DEXA scan, but I think what you might find there is that a lot of that excess fat is actually surrounding your muscle, your internal organs. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's below the muscles. It's hidden by the rest of the muscle, the um, muscle structure. Yeah, that's right. And that's the problem. So you get, you get, it tells you two main kinds of fat. There's subcutaneous fat. We're really going off another topic now. Subcutaneous fat. Um, which is the the, the, must, the the fat under your skin, and that's generally what you can see. And then it also talks about visceral adipose tissue, and that's the fat around your organs. And it's the mm. it's the visceral adipose tissue that is the area of high concern for me. So that that's that's the one that really yeah. puts me in the high risk category because it's around m- m- my organs, right? So yes, so uh, 
you know, that combined with Thursday, I just thought I'm not going to have a beer tonight. And uh, I, I, I'm going to start taking a lot better help, uh, better care of my health okay. and my weight. I think that's a good segue then into next week's topic. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about health. Or next week, next fortnight, next topic. Um, a bit more about ourselves. Yeah. So we might leave it there. Leave everyone a cliffhanger to hear more about it. Fantastic. All right, Liam, thank you so much for listening to me waffle on and on about VR. And as you can no doubt tell, I happily keep going. But uh, I've been droning on for a long time already, and, and it's probably a good time to call it quits. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for, uh, for listening. No, no, that was very entertaining, informative. Like I said, I don't know if I'm going to go out and buy a Quest 3 anytime soon, but I wouldn't take one back if it ended up on my doorstep. <laughs> hint, hint, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for your time tonight, mate. Thank you, Liam. Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dharawal and Darkinjung land. 